Welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is January 4th, 2016, and this is broadcast number 95. I just got back from vacation, and it was 85 degrees where I was. And this morning I woke up in Greenville, South Carolina, and it was 34 degrees. So, um... Quite a shock, but anyway, this is the first. This is tomorrow, the fr- twenty seven. So. Oh, twenty seven tomorrow. Doctor Piper says. Well, this is the first broadcast of two thousand and sixteen, and and um, this is faith and practice edition number twenty. Um, and uh, so we're thankful to have Doctor Piper in studio again to uh, take the questions that the listeners have sent in over the last few weeks. Number of them have come in, and we'll do our best to get to all of them. But if not, we'll just roll them over to next month. But, Dr. Pipe, it's great to have you on again to um, deal with some of these questions. Some of them carry over from last week. But uh, why don't you pray for us, and then we'll uh, begin, if that's okay. Good, Bill. Well, I'm glad you're back and had a good vacation. Did you play any golf? I didn't. Oh, well, I didn't either. So. My father was in the hospital. Oh, that's right. So How's he doing? He's doing fine. He should get out on his birthday. <laughs> Oh, okay. So, good birthday gift. (laughs) Well, that is good. Yeah. All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bless you that you are the God of all creation and providence, the God of salvation, the holy triune God who is our God. We thank you for the privilege of studying your word, of working together here at the seminary, and we thank you for the modern technology that gives us the opportunity to reach out, Lord, to uh, friends and hearers around the world. So, we ask that you bless this podcast today as well as the live broadcast of it and may your spirit give us true illumination and help us in our pilgrimage hmm. we ask these things for christ's sake amen amen and and as i usually fail to do this is um faith and practice number 20 but we do this live as well as the recording so um for those who are listening live and driving up the interstate coming back from florida um my assistant who schedules all of these podcasts for me. I know he's listening live, so a little bit of a, as it were, a shout out to him um, driving. But anyway, so let's jump in. We, we have an hour or so, and so we're just going to get to the questions that have come in. Um, as some of them, as I indicated, are carryovers. So question number one is rather lengthy. Um, how do you want to do this? Why don't I read it and pause as I go along? Outstanding. Okay. You could read the background, I guess, uh, up through the first three paragraphs. So, okay. So I'm going to read the first three paragraphs of the question. It is lengthy, and then Dr. Piper is going to interact with it as he goes along. But uh, the listener writes, And I know someone in Canada who is about to join a union for the first time. Anybody who wants to be employed in that corporation for that particular position must join the union. No union, no entrance. This union has a history of going on strike. I heard from others working in that union corporation that workers who crossed the picket line in the past faced violence from co-workers. What do you think about crossing the picket line? This union used its union dues not exclusively for the betterment of those in the union. It also uses the mandatory dues politically. It is, among other things, pro-LGBT, that's lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender, for those who don't know, pro-Hamas and anti-Israel. Uh, shouldn't union dues be used 100% for its union members? Keep going. I think we can do this all. Okay. It seems to me that workers in a union don't have the same drive to work hard. They know their rights, but don't seem to place the same emphasis on their obligations. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the following, and then this is a bullet list. Are unions even necessary, given that problems can be addressed through the courts? Do unions breed laziness? Do you see any benefit, need of unions? Is it okay for a Christian to be in a union? If so, how can he be in one circumspectly? This union in particular, uh, crossing the picket line. If one wants to work while his co-workers are on strike, should he ignore the risk of bodily harm and being ostracized? Not paying or seeking to not pay the portion of union dues that are politically used. Anything else related to unions? Uh, thank you. And this is from... Um, Just leave it. Uh, yeah. Anonymous. Uh, yeah. We'll leave it that way. All right. Uh, although we will say that the reader is in Canada. And I, I, I say that because, I mean, the questioner, because of the background. Uh, in Canada, historically, there was a movement to have Christian unions. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was in seminary in the late 60s, I actually did a paper on the Christian labor movement in, in Canada. And those arose out of the fact that, on the one hand, uh, to have... Uh, collective bargaining to have uh, 
someone to sit down with management on behalf of workers and negotiate, those are good things. But the very things these questions get at were what hindered Christians then from being in unions, and that is particularly uh, the striking, which seems to violate the biblical mandate even to slaves to work not as men-pleasers, but for the glory of God. Then the increased uh, liberal political agenda of union dues, uh, and as well as the lack of freedom of a worker to cross the picket line. So the questioner really does get to um, the problem. Uh, we've been blessed, the United States, increasingly states are uh, passing uh, these right-to-work laws where no company can keep you out if you do not want to join a union, and uh, people are fleeing the unions right and left, even uh, even non-Christians. Uh, let me uh, let's just start with the probably the most difficult part: Should a Christian be in a union? Uh, I I think no, but I would have to say that to some degree, I would leave it as a matter of Christian liberty if I were pastoring the church. Although I think some denominations have uh, stances, and that would be different than the denomination. You've joined a denomination, you know its stance. But um, I don't think a Christian should be for the reasons uh, that I've just given. Um, we are to work a full week's work. Uh, even slaves were told to submit to their masters, even despotic masters. And so uh, to uh, join a union that is going to use uh, work slowdowns and stoppages, which are also as detrimental as uh, going on complete strike. I remember the first time I – or the second time perhaps I flew into Britain, there was a – wasn't a strike, but it was a, a work slowdown. And it took forever to get through Gatwick Airport uh, because of that. Another time when we moved to Philadelphia, uh, there was a transit strike and – you couldn't get anywhere in the city if you didn't have a car. Uh, these are the kind of things that hurt lots of other people, and it, I believe, is um, coercion and not, uh, not, not negotiation. And so I, I would advise a Christian not to join a union. I recognize that means that there are some companies that one cannot work for, and I would take that as a matter of self-denial. Uh, for the sake of the gospel, much in the same way that there's some companies that a Christian cannot work for because of unwilling to do unnecessary work on the Lord's Day. Um, yes, if, if union dues can be directed, uh, they should be used exclusively for the purposes of union, improving the benefits of, of workers. Another problem <coughs> in the United States is unions not only have the threat of striking, but because of their <clears throat> high-ended monopoly, for example, in the education, have basically destroyed uh, the public school. They're bankrupting cities because of their high-end uh, retirement accounts. So there's lots of other things going on here that are uh, hurting uh, the broader uh, society. If one is in the union, I think one would have to cross the picket line and um, trust God for uh, protection at that point. Make sure there's police uh, protection there uh, when one uh, does that. I'm not going to say unions breed laziness. That would be a generalization. There are uh, some members of unions that are hardworking people, and this is a matter of their conscience, and um, they're trying to do their work as a Christian as well. So I probably satisfy nobody completely with that answer, but uh, that's at least where I am at this point. Very good. Yeah, difficult issue. I've been in a union as well as not, and um, to be honest, I've never felt just from an employment perspective. I never felt that it was much benefit. So um, uh, there was a time for him. I think in the United States, I think that's t has come and gone. But that's my opinion, of course. All right. Move well, yeah, and I mean, as the, as the questioner points out, there are so many things now through the court system and the uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and things uh, such as that that employees have uh, lots of avenues if they're not yep. being treated uh, properly. Yep, the labor laws and, and whatnot from states and federal government, um, there's protection there as well. All right, moving on to the next question. Zach writes in from Pennsylvania. 
Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, and he has a question related to parachurch ministries. He writes, over the past several years, my wife and I have been involved in a number of parachurch, parachurch ministries that focus on community building, outreach, and biblical instruction. The best ones have partnered with local churches to fulfill their mission, but some operate completely independent of local churches. Through, uh, though the parachurch workers involved are members of evangelical churches and subject to the oversight of their elders, pastors. For what it's worth, our church enthusiastically supports a large variety of, ev- of evangelism-focused parachurch ministries in our area, including a few that have non-reformed backgrounds. My, question, my questions are general with regards to this idea of the parachurch and its place in relationship to the church. Feel free to tackle all or one of them or just use them to frame a short discussion. How ought we to evaluate parachurch ministries to decide whether or not we should be involved? <coughs> Specifically, how can we bring the word to bear on our examination of the governance of these ministries? How can we all best strengthen the local church to lessen our reliance upon parachurch ministries? So it's all about parachurch. <laughs> yes, and um, it's a very useful question, Zach. I thank you uh, for it. Um, definition, a parachurch is uh, an organization that works alongside the church doing some type of Christian ministry. So uh, to frame the question, it's not that all parachurch ministries would be invalid, but I would say that some parachurch ministries are not valid. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's begin with the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith chapter on the church, chapter 25, paragraph 3. Under this Catholic visible church, Christ hath given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances. So these are the particular things given to the church. Church office bearers, the word of God, and the ordinances, the sacraments, the preaching, such as that. Four, the gathering and perfecting of the saints to the end of the world and doth by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual thereunto. Now, this statement's here because it was the Reformer's conviction, and I believe it is the biblical, um, a biblically-based conviction, that to the visible church, the institutional church, uh, God has given this responsibility uh, for the gathering and perfecting of the saints. For example, the ordinances. Only the church has the right to exercise the sacraments. And so a person is to be baptized, and they're to be baptized into the church, but in a visible church. Mm-hmm. We know baptism is very important when the Ethiopian eunuch, who is in the chariot with Philip, and Philip is presenting the gospel, and they're driving along, and there's a little body of water, and it wasn't Philip saying, there's some water why not be baptized? The eunuch said, there's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And so obviously baptism was a part of Philip's gospel message. Not that baptism uh, is for the remission of sins in any sacramental sense, but it is a requirement of Christ. Now you might say, well, yeah, but that wasn't the church. Well, no, there was no church in Ethiopia. It was just being the gospel is just beginning to move from uh, Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost ends of the earth. But the idea is is that baptism is given to the church as circumcision was in the Old Covenant, and uh, it's necessary part of gospel ministry. The Lord's Supper, a necessary part of for Christian growth, is uh, to be exercised clearly from Scripture within the boundaries of the visible church. So on that basis, it's my opinion that whether or not a group had reformed soteriology, that the uh, church ought not to be using parachurch organizations for evangelism and discipleship. Now that in a way denies the fact that God has used these organizations, Mm -hmm. uh, some of them in, in a powerful manner, probably in the lives of a number of our hearers. Uh, and that's God's gracious sovereignty. We don't frame ministries on the basis of what God uh, does in his grace. We only frame our ministries on the basis of what the Word of God teaches. And so 
I mean, for example, in my denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, the reason Reformed University uh, Ministries was begun was to have a church-based a group working on campus with college students. On the other hand, there are ministries that uh, are not given to the church as the visible church, but to Christians within the church. And these then should be performed by parachurch, if we want to call them organizations, uh, take Missionary Aviation Fellowship. It's not the church's responsibility to have air service to missionaries and foreign places, and so a group of Christians formed together uh, to start uh, uh, air service uh, for missionaries of all different mission groups and uh, denominations. I think this is where hospitals would fall, Mm -hmm. (coughs) crisis pregnancy centers, adoption agencies like Bethany. These were all groups started by Christians uh, to do Christian work that was not given to the church, but to um, Christians. Now, a lot of these things one does not need is, is the same kind of doctrinal statement. You don't need to believe in the lifted to confession of faith to fly an airplane to help service OPC or PCA missionaries. <laughs> you, need, you need to be a person that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and accepts the Bible as the Word of God and the Trinity and the basic do- Apostle Creed doctrines. So we don't have the same doctrinal standards uh, for those works or for the people that we can cooperate with. Uh, one of our board members, pastor of the church that my wife and I attend here in town, is also on the board of Piedmont Women's Center, pro-life thing. Now, that is a different confessional background. It doesn't have the narrowness of Greenville Seminary, but that does not create a problem. And in fact, in our parishes, our local churches, we need to become much more inventive, I think, with parachurch activities. The deacons are to minister to the uh, needs of the congregation and uh, the basic needs of people within what I call the parish, the confines of the denomination. But they also should be developing other resources that they can use as deacons and point people to, not government resources, but... um, Groups that would teach English as a second language, groups that would do job training, uh, uh, groups that would uh, do these types of things, and so the the deacons would have these uh, resources. I've been involved in a ministry in Nigeria, and I my last trip over was two years ago. Lord will, I'm going back this March, but um, one of my purposes on this trip last time was to start working on economic development. Took a hmm. ruling elder friend with me. We were clear on the front end that this is not something that the church needs to be operating. The church could appoint the initial group of people that would run the Economic Development Committee. They can give reports to the church. They give reports to me and and my friend. But it's not under the church's governance, and that's the way it should be. So that's a true parachurch organization doing economic development, creating jobs for Christians uh, in uh, a very poor area. So, Zach, I hope this uh, helps. Quick summary, only the church should be doing evangelism and discipleship. Uh, churches can cooperate together in those types of activities. Uh, the broader activities that are more diaconal in nature, but beyond the realm of the immediate diaconal ministry of the church, can be parachurch-type activities, and we don't need the same narrowness of confessional commitment at that point. Very good, and... Um Zach, I appreciate you writing in and asking. It's a, it's an important subject, I think, um, as has been highlighted by Dr. Pipe already. There's yeah, so many be, things out there. Right, and some people might be wanting even at this point to ask, well, what about Greenville Seminary? Aren't you a parachurch organization? And that's a very valid comeback. Uh, I will say on any level below seminary, colleges, universities, day schools ought not to be run by the church. I don't think the church should be in the business of liberal arts, secondary, primary education. When it comes to the work of a seminary, I think that uh, one can go either direction. I think that uh, the seminary can function as under a particular church, which is historically uh, what the seminaries did uh, in the United States as this is where they began. 
But uh, and I think isn't there a piece on my website about seminary education? I don't think so. Okay, we'll get that on there. There, there may be, but there's uh, a lot there, so it's hard for me to remember. The um, the seminary uh, is a servant of the church, and so in our case, we are uh, a trans-denominational Reformed seminary committed very strictly to the Westminster Standards and the three forms of unity. Um, and because it's not a denomination that would have the uh, complete commitment that we do at any dom- denominational level, um, we are in this position of being independent. But all of our board members are members of mm-hmm. uh, Reformed confessional churches, and we actually have relationships with sessions and a synod and a presbytery uh, to whom uh, we answer. But I think a seminary can be like a publishing company that a church could publish books uh, or they could work alongside a publisher to publish books. A church could have a seminary or a church could work along – a seminary could work alongside the church. And so we actually define ourselves as the academy and not as a graduate school because our purpose is to prepare men to serve uh, the church. But then it's the church – and not the seminary that puts imprimatur on those men. A degree from Greenville Seminary does not say that this man is examined by the church and qualified to pastor. It says that he's received the um, adequate training to be examined by the church and to serve as a pastor. At the end of the day, it's the church's responsibility to examine a man and to uh, set him aside to office. Yeah, yeah very good question, and, and- there's a number of things Dr. Piper said that I would love to come back with and, and maybe discuss further, like the educational aspects of the church related to um, like um, elementary school and parochial schools and, and stuff. Maybe someday we'll have a whole discussion about that. That was uh, interesting. Well, we ought to. That would be a good podcast. It would do. be. And I know Dr. Curtle's a big fan of that and, and promotes that actually in his Christian ed class, uh, the parochial church-governed school. Absolutely. Why not? Well, I mean, let's go there. I mean, why you you made that comment that you don't think the church should be involved in the in, in like elementary education right. type? Um, where I would think that the church should be involved in the educational aspects, establishing parochial schools within their bounds in their presbytery, and uh, then having their teachers who are trained in those particular areas, but also agreeing, like we do here at the seminary, agreeing that they would subscribe to the standards and then have oversight from Board of Trustees <coughs> and a session that is is running that. So you don't you you would say the church shouldn't Historic do that. Historic reform position has been no. Even when the Southern Presbyterians came south, schools were started everywhere, but it was the Christians in the community. Now the pastor was often the teacher. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the church was not running the school, as far as I as as best I know. It's interesting because I wrote in fulfillment of one of the requirements that was was um, expected of in the Christian ed class, I wrote a whole paper dealing with the three primary areas of education: homeschool, public school, parochial school. Um, trying to identify is there a best is there a better solution for parents well, within that, the education? That's too narrow. Well, I don't think so. Yeah, parochial. You're confusing parochial school and Christian school. Well, no, I'm using parochial in the sense of um, Christian-based governed. Um, well, by the that's church. not what I'm against. Okay, I'm a, I, I am following the model of parent-controlled Christian schools that subscribe to the Westminster Standards. Fine. Parochial means that it's under the session. Wait, see, I would that would be where I would be. Okay, that's fine. But the way you defined your paper, you left out a whole segment of. Um, well, I don't know if I did that. I mean, you have to read the paper, but. Um, <laughs> I mean, that was my first paragraph. I actually defined it because most people in our culture today, they hear parochial and they think Catholic almost immediately. And I turned away from that definition because that's really not the right definition of the term. Um, I used it more generally um, in the sense of the church and um, and, and, and establishing uh, the educational program uh, governing um, the okay. teachers and whatnot. We need to get back to... The confession says the gathering perfecting of the elect. 
That's true. Liberal arts education part of the gathering effect of the elect. That's where. But we'll let's pursue that one day. We'll get. We should. We should. Yeah, we should have them come in because that would be interesting to hear you two both go back and forth. Because I I was uh, actually uh, convinced actually in his argumentation in class, but. Anyway, see, you got to come. If you come to seminary, you can have these great discussions with the professors, and you can actually have them in the hallway, uh, outside of class, and and all these other great benefits of actually being here. And uh, this is radio, not TV, um, (laughs) thankfully. Um, But uh, these are the kinds of discussions you have to flesh these things out, especially if you're going into the ministry, because you may be faced with these very questions. Parents are going to ask. Oh yeah. No, no, where should I educate important. my edu- how should I educate my children? Should I put them in public school? Should I homeschool what? Um, every parent wrestles with that question. And you ought to, uh, especially in today's climate. But that's a different subject for another day. Let's move on before somebody gets in trouble. Um, anyway, um, Stefan writes in, and I think I pronounced his name correctly. Um, he phonetically spelled it for me to, to help me do it correctly. So I think I did that right. But he writes in from uh, Virginia. It looks like Virginia. <clears throat> and uh, it's a pretty general question that we can deal with in a minute. Dr. Pipe, are there any lectures available to the public? You skipped one. Uh, that you, Okay, well, I'll come back. I don't think I did. Dante, uh, St- Stevens is, uh, I was encouraged a couple of years ago to leave. No, there's there's one right in front of it. I think you it just got cut oh, I'm off. sorry. Yep, that's You're okay. Right. Stephen has two. Yeah, he has two, back to back. This one is... Um, it basically asked the question, is there any public lectures that GPTS offers... Um, Free of charge. Go ahead and read it because it's a good ad. Yeah, it's, he says, uh, "Are there any lectures available to the public that uh, that uh, Greenville Seminary offers?" It goes without saying that I and my wife often pray for the seminary teachers and students. You guys are doing such a needed work in the reform world with this podcast. I really enjoy the down to earth feel of the podcast, which I really appreciate that comment because that's always my goal to make it practical and useful um, as the host. But uh, I think that's the goal of everyone here. But uh, he says, may the fruit of the podcast outlive us all. Um, well, anyway. Stefan, that's good. Uh, yes, we do. Uh, most of our things can be found on a sermon audio. Uh, so uh, all, of, all of my sermons, other chapel sermons, special lectures, and I think you can go to our website and get the link to where these are. We're in the process, and we do have now a number of special lectures we're trying to pull lectures out of the archives and put on there. So one of the goals this year is to get uh, larger portions of lectures. Now, you can get <coughs> for a very minimal price. You can purchase, say, my worship course. Mm-hmm. You can get the uh, MP3 and uh, the syllabus and the reader uh, and you know do with that as, as you want to. So there, uh, we're going to do more advertising with respect to that. But you can uh, – it's up to each professor. If a person wants to j- just uh, order the course, uh, it's shipped to you electronically. Do uh, you remember what, what that cost? No, it's obviously different. If, if you want us to uh, compile the lectures and send them to you, it's always going to cost money. But if you yeah. just want to download them from Sermon Audio, the ones that have been released for no, I'm free. I'm talking about courses, though. Yeah. We actually have courses put together now to do that as well. So. I don't know what the pricing is. I don't yeah. think we've ever really. Well, we did. I know we've set a, pr- a price, and it's very reasonable. Yep. So uh, we, they're accessible that way, and I'm actually working on some ideas to do some stuff that uh, Hillsdale does, but making some lectures public. Problem is, I teach very Socratically, and I need to just take these lectures and get a group, maybe the Ladies' Fellowship, and do a condensed form with graphics and such, and put together some programs like that. So these are things that we're working on. There's a lot available, but we want to make a lot more available this year. Just to help you out, those who are listening and uh, live and uh, through the recording, um, maybe you don't know we're on Sermon Audio. I mean, it's it's possible. Uh, we have thousands of people listening all over. We have the largest over. footprint on Sermon Audio. Yeah, uh, and, and so we have listeners in Australia, <laughs> South Africa, China, you name it. And uh, so if you go to SermonAudio.com, and you can search for us. It's GPTS and Mount Olive. Um, we inherited uh, the entire Mount Olive tape library. And, and for those who are in their 20s or even early 30s, that you wouldn't even know about it. Um, I participated in Mount Olive tape library when I was newly uh, converted to the Reformed faith. And um, it was a huge benefit. But we inherited all of their tapes from that library, and we digitized 
I think just about every well, they did, one of had them. Well, they digitized a thousand when we got it, and we've continued the the process. I hope of getting them digitized. So, yeah. Well, so anyway, it's it's GPTS Amount Olive on Sermon Audio. Also, the the GPTS mobile app that that we released a couple of years ago has all the spring theology conference lectures going back to 2012. So 12, 13, and 14, they're all there. Actually, and 15. What year are we in? Yeah, 16. 15. So, <laughs> so anyway, uh, so there's four or five years of theology conference lectures there, including the podcast, Dr. Piper's Chapel Sermons, both video and audio. So um, one of the things I've been looking into and in trying to get established is iTunes University. Um, so a number of the other seminaries uh, utilize that program where it, it combines uh, video, audio, the syllabus, all the materials into one course. Um, so I'm working on that behind the scenes, trying to get that to happen. Um, but it's a very involved process. But anyway, that's where you can get um, the, the bulk of our material. Now, if you really want more information, um, you, you need to write our librarian. He, he handles most of this part of the process, and you can do so. It's, it's A. Wartman, the letter A, and Wartman, W-O-R-T-M-A-N, all one word, at gpts.edu if you have any questions. And he can a- answer just about every one of them. So Well, good. And since you mentioned the conference, uh, we'll just do a blur up here. Now, the next hour, which we're going to stay live as well, is that right? We'll, we'll, we'll go off the air and come back, come back on, on the air. But we're going to do a podcast on the conference, but just here – for those of you, our spring conference is coming up very quickly now, March 8th, 10th, and 11th. It is on uh, family, marriage, and sexuality, obviously a very timely uh, conference this year. We're very excited about the lineup of speakers that we have. You can go on the website and see the brochure. We have a special pre-registration. It's before January 29th, mm-hmm. I think, is the date. And then we have special church registrations now where if you have groups, you get really – uh, special deals. So we'd like to see all of y'all who listen to the podcast come to the conference this year. Yes, that would be great to, to see the listeners. Um, anyway, you'll see me bouncing around. You'll definitely see Dr. Piper. Cause we'll do a live be podcast speaking. at the conference this year. Okay, we're going to do a live podcast at the conference. <laughs> I love how my schedule just gets fuller and fuller every time I do a podcast. Anyway, okay, well, let's move on to the next question. We're running out of time. Um, <coughs> but, but, again. But that was a good question um, just as far as information, and that's um, always something we want to be promoting. Um, but Stefan writes in again, um, back-to-back question. He says, I was encouraged a couple of years ago to leave the Reform faith for a denomination outside of the Reform faith that might be more helpful in helping with a special needs um, uh, circumstance with his son who has autism. What encouragement would you give to special needs children and their parents to stay in the Reformed faith? I couldn't leave the Reformed faith no more than I could leave off breathing and yet live. Stefan, you're a man after my own heart. Love you, boy. I um, I agree with you. There are there are times because our churches are going to be small or whatever, they're not going to have the same kind of, of uh, resources for young people and particularly for special needs young people. But I think we can uh, augment uh, what's in the church with the many resources that are now available. Let me give you a contact. Uh, perhaps you've heard the recordings of Lori Seeley. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lori's husband, Phil, is a graduate of Greenville, is doing a church plant in North Carolina. Silva. Silva, North Carolina. And we'll post uh, their email, get permission from them to do so. But they have uh, a son who has autism and have done just great things with him. They're in a church plant. So they haven't even had the opportunity to think about a church that has resources. And God's blessed their efforts. So they give us permission. But now you got the name. You can obviously on your own contact them, and I would encourage you to to do so. But um, – so many Reformed pastors will hear uh, people say, you know, we, we like your church, we like the worship, we like the preaching, and then suddenly they, they've disappeared and you contact them. Well, yes, your church has all these things, but it doesn't have anything for our children. It doesn't have a music program, so we're going to go to this big church down the street. Um, but in the second commandment, God says if we don't worship him properly, 
he visits that to the children of the third and fourth generation. Your child is better off in a church that doesn't have the resources that you would like to have that is under faithful worship and preaching than he is in a church without faithful worship and preaching that does not have uh, – that, that does have those resources. And so uh, hang in there uh, and seek the Lord. Uh, get available resources that you do have, but keep your, your boy under uh, Reformed worship and Reformed preaching. Yeah, excellent question. And um, I can get a hold of Pastor Seeley. Um, so if you write me directly. <laughs> We've got his email. We'll give it to Pastor Seeley. Okay, very good. All right, our next question comes in from Pete, writing from, um, I think that's Washington. It's my printer. Uh, Just ignore it. <laughs> what can they? <laughs> so they can hear it, but it goes off every time we do one. Um, I always forget to turn it off. But anyway. Pete writes in from um, Washington, and he wants to know what the biblical definition of, of a missionary is. He writes in, uh, Dr. Piper and Bill, I want to say, first of all, that I am deeply grateful for this show and all the work that goes into it, as well as the wisdom that is shared. May the Lord continue to bless your work. For the past several years, I have been wrestling with the question of how to properly define the role of missionary according to the scriptures. I can't think of anywhere in the Bible where it is specifically laid out. Should we see them as deacons and elders who have been called to serve outside the context of the church that ordained them? Following that, I have one further question. When a church has ordained a missionary to serve with a parachurch organization, what should the church see as her responsibility to A, the missionary, and B, to the organization? Very good, Pete. This kind of dovetails with the earlier question right. uh, as well. Um, and it's actually a question that we've talked about a good bit here with Dr. Curto and Dr. Wilborn. Uh, we all think that uh, the idea of, of a missionary as some uh, special extra calling over ministry is not correct. Uh, man's called to the gospel ministry, and he then seeks God's leading, best place to use his gifts and uh, opportunities uh, for ministry. Some will have a burden for a particular country our burden uh, to go overseas, and you take those things uh, of the Lord to be seriously uh, considered. Uh, but, uh, of course, the missionary simply means the sent one. And in a sense, anybody that's ministering in a church plant, whether it's here or overseas, is a missionary. So in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and the Presbyterian Church in America, we have home missionaries and we have overseas uh, missionaries are all missionaries. They've simply been sent to labor uh, in a field that does not have uh, a, an organized church. And so uh, ministers um, sent overseas labor as missionaries. I think it's good to send ruling elders and deacons uh, either to destitute areas here. My son-in-law was a church planter in uh, rural Kentucky, and we increasingly just sought to get a deacon into that situation with him. Uh, he needed it. The Orthodox Presbyterian Church sends uh, deacons uh, on a number of their fields. I think Uganda has been the model uh, where they keep deacons there uh, doing work uh, as well. Um, so we get to the question then, is the woman that goes out to teach in the Christian school or to help the pastor's wife, a missionary? I think not. She's a church member who's been sent to help in a particular situation. She's a school teacher. She's an au pair or whatever. Um, but I prefer to keep the term missionary then to be applied to those who are sent out to do that work of the church as we defined it uh, in the previous uh, question. Um, now, we do have uh, ordained missionaries serving with parachurch organizations. My, my denomination in particular, the Presbyterian Church in America, has used parachurch organizations to extend her usefulness. Um, and there's a contract that must be agreed on uh, for that to, to be approved. The parachurch organization has to agree that the missionary can teach uh, the totality of uh, his confessional position, and the missionary every year <coughs> is to re do a report <coughs> that says 
that he has had that freedom. The church also, as the Presbytery, in our case, as Presbyterian, should be guaranteeing that the material and spiritual and uh, doctrinal needs of the missionary are being taken care of. Calvary Presbytery had a missionary sent out with the denomination, and the missionary was running into difficulties with uh, false teaching on the field, and the Presbytery steps in uh, and uh, basically uh, gives protection then to uh, to that missionary. So if we do use the parachurch organizations, I prefer not to, but if we do, we must we must guarantee that the uh, the minister has a confessional freedom mm-hmm. uh, and that uh, if there is error being taught or he's being forced into things that his presbytery, will um, intercede on his behalf. And then we have today things like the insider movement in a lot of mission organizations. And so some of these people might claim to be reformed, but we need to be sure that um, the gospel itself is not being um, infected with error. Right. Appreciate the question and and um, and writing into the program and, and your kind words as well. Um, they're very encouraging. I did get a question, Dr. Piper, from one of the listeners who's live, and it's related to the conference. Um, okay, and then because we wh- got two minutes. When? Well, we have, <coughs> oh, that's right. We got twenty. Yeah, we got about seventeen minutes. We got Go seventeen minutes. Um, the first two lectures on Wednesday from Dr. P- uh, Dr. Beaky and Dr. Bacchus. Um, the question is: Are they would they be appropriate for children? Yeah, I've been uh, written that question as uh, well. Uh, one is on intimacy in marriage. The other one is going to be on pornography. Uh, I need to interact with those speakers. Uh, if if there's an age limit, uh, we'll have something going on uh, down in the uh, large uh, choir room uh, for uh, for children at that particular point. And so but we'll know ahead of time, and we'll let all of you know that because we, we like having the families come. We like the children here. And so I need to write both speakers, inquire what age level that they think. Uh, I've read Dr. Beakey's book on intimacy and marriage, and I don't see anything in it that would be uh, uh, em- embarrassing uh, to uh, a youngster. Uh, but we'll, we, we do plan to check on that, and we will have some kind of uh, alternative. We'll let Mr. Hill teach the children during that hour or something. Right. One more job for him. Sure. See, see, every time I do a podcast, I end up with more work to do. So I'm going to stop doing podcasts. This way I don't have any more work to do. Okay, I'm kidding. Um, just a, as a promo as well, um, it's a great question uh, from one of the listeners. It's a, it's a, a very good question. Um, but I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Beakey and Dr. Backus in the next couple weeks on their conference lecture material. So uh, look forward to that as well. It's just kind of a promo to the conference, and we're getting these guests on. So they're already lined up, um, thanks to my assistant. They're set, and um, you can uh, go to the website, confessingourhope.com, and you can see when that material will be released. So excellent question um, and very appropriate. Thank you for asking. Um, The next question comes in from Mark. He writes in on uh, regarding baptism, and this is actually a follow-up question that was asked from Faith and Practice number 19. So he writes, if the PCA, OPC, or NAPARC more generally declared the PCUSA and other groups that have abandoned the pure preaching of the gospel as apostate, where in time would they draw the line to say, quote, that group after X date is no church, unquote? I asked because I was baptized in my father's childhood church where my grandmother was a member. Since that was accepted, would that baptism become invalid retroactively? Mark, um, very important question, um, and I don't know how a, a particular assembly would decide this. My recommendation, as I'm pushing this, is that it begins the day of the vote. And so a person that comes to a PCA congregation that was baptized before the declaration of apostasy, that baptism is acceptable. So let's say it happens uh, June of... Uh, 2016, anybody then baptized after June 2016, uh, then would uh, that would not be a Christian baptism. Uh, 
But your question opens another issue. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were baptized in your father's church where your grandmother was a member, but your father wasn't, then you know that also is an improper baptism, but it's practiced often over in Scotland and has been practiced in some of the Dutch churches. So I would say it is not proper, but I still wouldn't uh, consider rebaptism to be uh, necessary. But if it, it was simply a cultural thing and your father had no intention of raising you as a Christian, you were baptized because your grandmother wanted you baptized, then maybe ought to consider being baptized. Hmm. I'd at least discuss it with my session. Well, good, very good question, and, and, and good follow-up um, from what we did um, Yeah, I'm glad people last are listening time. So, and thinking. Yeah, so that, yeah, it's encouraging to see that interaction. And keep doing that. Um, again, you can write in, in numerous ways to the program. Just go to the website, and you can get all the ways you can contact uh, the program there. Uh, Dennis writes in the next question. Um, he writes in regarding the law, and he asks in Roman two, Romans 2.15, the word states that the law is written um, on all men's heart, but in Jeremiah 31.33, the word states in the New Covenant that God will write his law on the believer's heart. <clears throat> what law is being written on the heart in each case, and what is the difference between the two? Thank you, Dennis. When God created uh, Adam and Eve, uh, he put the moral law on their hearts. Uh, And so now we don't know what he also gave to them uh, in addition with respect to those laws verbally. We know he did give the creation ordinances of Sabbath, work, and marriage. He gave the covenant ordinances. But he also – and that law was there. And although when Adam fell, it was greatly affected, it was not completely effaced. Mm -hmm. And that's – why conscience operates in the unregenerate as well as the regenerate, because the basis of conscience is the law of God that's written on the heart. This shows the grace of Mount Sinai and the ten words written on the tablets of stone. Uh, What God did for the church in Exodus 20 was to give them now in infallible, perfect verbal form that which had been on Adam's heart and was defaced by the fall And um, now God gave the clear word. What the new covenant is promising then is that word, the commandments of God, are not that that are external to us in the revelatory form. That now is we have the power to keep those things, which the natural man does not have. He has conscience condemning, law by itself condemns. But because of gospel, because of union with Christ, because the Spirit indwells us, what Jeremiah is promising now is the ability to keep the law. Okay, well, he stopped before I expected him to. (laughs) So that's why there was a big pause and I was not unmuted. But anyway, good question, and I appreciate you again writing in uh, to the program. We're moving quickly today, which is good. Because the next question might take us a while, even though it's small. (laughs) Arthur writes in, longtime listener uh, to the program. He writes in, is it wrong as a Christian to vote for a presidential candidate who is a Mormon or a Muslim? Well, Arthur used to be a good friend, but uh, I don't know any longer. But <laughs> he's just—he's just stirring the. I think he's stirring the pot. No, a little. it's very. It's a great question. Very important question, uh, and we discussed it some four years ago. Um, I would want to divide the issue. Mm-hmm. Let, let's say that more generally, uh, a Christian standards or doctrinal test uh, are not necessary to select a president. If the president has uh, constitutional convictions, for me, that is the much more important issue. We, we, we've had, uh, I think, of President Carter, who had some Christian convictions. He was a moderate Southern Baptist, I think had probably a weaker view of Scripture. But um, he had the Christian convictions, but he didn't have good constitutional convictions. And so, you know, it's kind of like my doctor is a five-point Calvinist. Now he has uh, messed up a lot of people because he's inept and incompetent. 
but I go to him because he's a five-point Calvinist. Well, I would go to the atheist who is competent. Now, I'm blessed to have Christian doctors who are also competent. But, and so obviously, if you have a Christian who's competent, then yes, you would, you would want that. Uh, and so uh, in the case of a Mormon, um, I, uh, I don't think that should have been an issue in the election if the candidate had strong constitutional convictions and track record. Now, for me, that immediately rules out a Muslim because Sharia law is contrary to the Constitution. Now, I, I hear the feedback right now, yes, but there are so many moderate Muslims. Well, I've been mulling over this. Um, G. Gresham Machen wrote a great book, uh, Liberalism is Not Christianity. And moderate Muslims are not Muslims. No. Nope. Moderate Muslims are like liberal Christians. They're Muslim in name only as liberal Christian is Christian in name only. Right. A moderate Muslim uh, does not believe in the Quran. The Quran, uh, radical Islam is consistent with, with the Quran. Moderate Islam is not consistent with Islam. And so I would I, I agree completely with Ben Carson, unless the man has renounced the Quran and Sharia law, uh, and he's, a, he's simply a nominal Muslim, but then they're allowed to lie to pagans, which they consider infidels or us. So I would never vote for uh, a Muslim. Uh, I, could, I did vote for Romney, uh, and I think it was, it was a mistake when Christians didn't uh, vote uh, vote for Romney. Yeah, I agree. I, I think um, you hit on a really interesting point that even the mainstream media, including Fox News, which I watch um, almost exclusively because I can't stand the other ones. Um, they, they're just ridiculous. Um, but they use that term, radical Islam, which every time I hear it, I say, that's that's what Islam is. That's It's not radical. That's the definition of Islam. Those who don't do what they're doing in the Middle East and in other places in the world, they're like Roman Catholics who never go to church. They, they say they're Catholic, but, but they don't. They don't really care one way or the other. It's it's convenient, and that's it. And um, so, no, you can't vote for a Muslim. And and Dr. Piper, I think you hit on another issue that I wanted to interrupt you when you talk about the Constitution as far as voting. Uh, the problem we have today is that almost none of the candidates are really talking about that issue except one. I mean, it, it's about the Constitution. I don't really care what your religious beliefs are per se. I do care, but... You're, you're, he happens you're, to be the most evangelical of yeah, all the candidates. And you're elected to, to uh, right. follow the Constitution of the United States. That's your job. You take vows to that. And, uh, and, and we don't have that now, and I don't see that happening. The Constitution is lost, has been lost, and we need to recover that. And that's what Christians ought to be voting for because that's what they're doing. That's their job. Their job is to uphold the Constitution of the United States. Anything that's contrary to that, Sharia law, the Koran, that runs contrary to that, you can't vote for them. That's why, uh, and for those of you that are older, we'll, we'll remember the furor over the election of President Kennedy, mm-hmm. first Roman Catholic. He was a Roman Catholic. Because the Roman Catholic Church uh, <laughs> has historically maintained its authority over all political figures. And that's it. Wasn't an, so much an anti-Catholicism in America is there was that whole political standard. Mm-hmm. Who's going to be this man? Is it going to be the Constitution, or is it going to be uh, the Pope? Now, President Kennedy, in many respects, was the really last good Democratic president we've ever had, and he did a number of good things. He was a very immoral man. I mean, he was a very typical mm. superstitious Roman Catholic. But um, uh, that was the issue then. Uh, now, I think that there's not an issue with Roman Catholic because of, of the, the Pope might claim those kind of things, but uh, nobody's going to listen to it. Yep. Uh, obviously, look at I mean, you've got people like uh, all the liberal Democrats that are pro-abortion are Roman Catholics, and uh, nothing happens to them. And, and, and I think just editorializing here um, – I think that's what frustrates, at least frustrates me, and I think frustrates most conservative Amer- conservative Americans, um, especially in middle America, 
is that the Constitution is the issue. Um, you give me a man who's going to pull the Constitution of the United States and get rid of all these nonsensical departments and czars and all this stuff that's not constitutional in any way, um, I'll vote for him. I, I don't really care if he's Democrat or Republican. It really is irrelevant to me. Uh, hold the, uphold the Constitution of the United States. That's what you're, that's what you're elected for to do. And, uh, and we just don't have that anymore. And it's been lost. And so Christians ought to be praying for a man who is moral and will uphold the Constitution. Um, that's what it's there for. And um, anyway, okay, I'm done editorializing. Let's move on to the next question. <laughs> I'm trying to think. We have five minutes left, Dr. Pipus, and we have one, two questions left. Which, ones, which one of these two can you do in five minutes? I only have one left. You, the, this one, okay, you might not have seen the very last one, but I think I printed it. Oh, it came in very late. It was on the Psalm one thirty nine twenty one to twenty two with New Testament teaching to love our enemies. Okay. So imprecatory psalms versus loving our enemies. That might be easier than. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Let's do that. One. Well, William writes in from San Antonio. He asks, um, "When, um, how do we reconcile verses like Psalm one thirty nine twenty one and twenty two with New Testament teachings to love our enemies?" Uh, very good. Um, we are to pray uh, for God's mercy on our enemies, particularly if they are our enemies personally, uh, those who persecute us. Mm-hmm. Imprecatory psalms have to do with the church. And the uh, uh, wickedness of men uh, uh, socially and corporately. And so uh, I don't see any uh, problem at all between uh, praying for my enemies. I pray God will convert them. But I also pray if God doesn't convert them that he will remove them from evil. And I'm praying for broader Social political organizations and 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 rulers. I pray that uh, for ISIS. I pray God uh, sweep through them with revival, but if not, destroy them. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we're not. To, but that's not a personal thing. Uh, it is only because Christ's bride has been a greatly uh, uh, persecuted by uh, by wicked people. So we have in Revelation the the. Martyrs under the altar praying that God will vindicate their blood. Mm-hmm. So comparing Scripture with Scripture, we recognize that there, it's not a personal thing. I mean, it's in the same way when Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, if somebody slaps you in the face, you know, turn your cheek. The Bible also teaches self-defense. A slap on the face is not going to do you – it harms your pride, but it's not a threat on your life. But the threat on your life, regardless of what some current popular preachers are saying – You have a biblical responsibility. Did you read that article? No, I haven't. Defend yourself. And that means means carrying a gun? Carry a gun. I think a Christian ought to be carrying a gun the day in which we live. A popular preacher, and and we have two minutes left, and and this this is probably a (laughs) podcast of itself. In fact, I was encouraged encouraged to bring it up, and so it kind of materialized. But a popular preacher had written – has written um, very recently. No, just uh, last two weeks. Um, an article that basically said that Christians should not defend themselves in their homes, should not have guns, should not do these things, and it created a big. There was a lot of backlash, um, but um, maybe we should take that up on another time. But uh, so if somebody would just send me a question, and we'll do it next month. Well, that's what I said to the person who mentioned it on Facebook. <clears throat> I said, "Why don't you write in and ask the question, and then we'll deal with it." So uh, and we'll read the article by next month. Yep, so I think what I'll do is I'm going to put it in regardless if I get a question so we can address it because it's an important issue Good. Um, Good. for um, for today's climate. Well, well and um, this last question from uh, uh, Michael is, is very good, and we'll start with it next month, and then we'll go to the, to the gun question. Outstanding. All right, let me just quickly um, – Bring everybody up to speed. Uh, the, the basic issues for the podcast, uh, confessingourhope.com, that's where all the information is. Um, and I do need uh, a, offer a correction. We don't have Dr. Backus firmly scheduled yet. We're still working on that. I said that earlier in the program that we did, and I was uh, sent a text message from my assistant who quickly corrected me. So thank you for that and keeping me uh, on track. He does a great job, and I'm so thankful to have him uh, keeping me in line as we try to do these programs those who are listening live if you hang on just stay where you are we're going to leave the live program 
Uh, we're going to end this segment, Faith and Practice 20, and then in a few minutes we're going to start another podcast with Dr. Piper where he'll be speaking specifically about the conference and his two lecture uh, subjects, which are on the issue of marriage and family. So stay tuned a couple minutes, and uh, we'll be back live then. For those listening to the recording, as always, we do thank you for listening to this program. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to write in at confessingourhope at gpts.edu. Until then, we thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless. God bless.